The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Marvelous. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's time for the Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll. And it's Friday. It's Oh yeah, the remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here. Let's go for a ride. Double time. Yeah, boy! We are here. It's Friday. I'm excited to have you. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. Thank you so much for being with me here today. Excellent show coming up. We got Eli Roth, one of the most unique, coolest, funnest individuals I've ever met in my life. He's a director. He did Hostel. He did Hostel 2. He did uh, Cabin Fever. He's working on a movie called Green Inferno right now about cannibals in the Amazon jungle that he actually traveled two and a half hours down the Amazon River to find a tribe of people that had never uh, met anybody from the outside world. That's a true story. They'd never seen a TV. They didn't know what a movie was. He paid them with medicine. Uh, just a crazy, crazy story. Plus, he was the bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards, the Quentin Tarantino epic, t- uh, epic movie. He actually killed Hitler. So, yeah, I got the guy that killed Hitler coming into my show today. So we got all that coming up. Very, very excited. Plus, later on, I'll be taking your calls. Go to the Twitter! At Talk is Jericho. Get the number when it's posted and give me a call and tell me all your hopes and dreams. I was just recently skiing, actually snowboarding. I still say skiing, even though I've been boarding for the last 10 years. Up in Park City, Utah. Great mountain. If you're a, a boarder or a skier, I highly suggest you go up and uh, and check it out and hang there. And uh, at night, I was kind of just messing around. My, my my kids and my wife had gone to band, and I was kind of screwing around on the YouTube, having a fine Gigi, which is, of course, a Grey Goose and ice. A yeah, boy! And I was uh, surfing YouTube, and I came across hearing aid. If you remember, hearing aid was um, the... Uh, 
song that the, the, all the metal guys in the in the mid '80s did for the, the starving children of Africa and you know elsewhere, and it started made me thinking that was the big trend in the mid '80s. Remember, there was like all of these all star bands that got together to uh, raise money and raise food for for starving children around the world. So I wanted to look into it, and as we have now a Talk is Jericho exclusive report. Talk is Jericho exclusive report. On all of these uh, all-star uh, bands that got together. The first one, of course, was started by Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats. I don't like Mondays. And he went to Africa... I don't know if he was touring or if he was just an activist and he saw all the starving children. He said, listen, I've got to do something. This was way back in like 1984. He flew back to England, made a couple calls and decided to put together Band-Aid, which is an amazing, amazing name, uh, which would be comprised of an all-star cast singing kind of an all-star song. So Bob and this guy called Midge Er, who was in a band called Ultravox back in the 80s, which was a, a really big band currently residing in the where they now file. And got like all of these crazy, like all the biggest stars in 1985. Like, listen to the lineup Bono, George Michael, Sting, Phil Collins, guys from Spandau Ballet. What an amazing band name that is. Remember that song, too? Like, if you were a kid in a high school dance or junior high school dance in like 84, 85, that song was always played. It was called True. And you'd go try and, you know. Pick up Mary Jane Rotten Crotch on the side of the stage or whatever and see if you can go dance with her. Maybe try and grab her buttocks. Yep. Bananarama was there. Duran Duran, Simon LeBond, John Taylor. How hot was John Taylor back in 1985? Wow. The Eurythmics were there. Heaven 17. Who's that? Frankie Goes to Hollywood, one of the best band names of all time. Relax. Don't do it when you want to come. I remember being in high school or junior high school, actually grade nine. It's like, oh, he said, come. He said, come. When you want to come? How dirty is that? Anyways, Paul Young was there. Cool, cool in the gang. What was cool in the gang doing there? They're not English. And boy, George was there, but he slept in. And Bob Geldof had to call him at his apartment in New York City. He said, get out of bed, you lazy bastard. Get on the Concord and make it here in time to sing your part. So Boy George actually got uh, cajoled out of his own bed and to jump on the Concord. Like, how much money did these guys have to go on the Concord and go, like, for that five-hour journey? Landed, went in the studio and started recording his part. But then, I guess, uh, Boy George and George Michael, Boy George Michael, as I like to call them, were in an argument. So when Boy George showed up, he was listening to the track and singing his line and heard uh, a vocal that he thought was a female and was getting confused. He said, that's not a female vocal, that's George Michael's vocal. And he's like, oh. He's, he's singing it so campy, because he is campy. So that was like the ultimate insult in 1985. You're camp, George, Boy George Michael. So they, they laid down the, the track and remember the video came out and it was just such a catchy song and... I remember Bono was like He was like all like almost crying on it and all this sort of stuff. And anyways, the the, the video and the and the song came out and it was a massive, massive hit made between fifty and seventy-five million pounds uh for the um the, the starving children. And to make sure that it actually got to the starving children, Midge Ur of Ultravox, where are they now, accompanied the first 
70,000 worth of food and medical supplies to Ethiopia to make sure that it made it there. Of course, Bob Geldof went on to, to do the Live Aid show, which is a whole other story. I know lots of little tidbits about that. But so for typical American fashion, when, when the English came out with this, the, the, the guys in the States were like, listen, we are going to do the same thing. And whatever they can do, we can do better. And suddenly Michael Jackson got involved. Like that is massive. The biggest star in the world at that point in time got involved. So, so Michael and Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie got together. And Michael and Lionel wrote the song "We Are the World." Although Lionel had to go like for dinner or take a break, and Michael just took it and finished it by himself, like in an hour. So that that whole tune is basically a Michael Jackson song. So as much as you know, there's a lot of you know kind of myths and trials and tribulations of Michael Jackson's career. But the bottom line is that he, the guy had a big heart, especially for children. He wrote this song basically by himself, and then went and started making the calls to once again get the biggest stars in the world involved. And, of course, you got uh, Harry Belafonte. <laughs> Not exactly the best example of the biggest stars in the world, but Belafonte was there. Dale! Lindsey Buckingham, Kim Carnes, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Sheila E., James Ingram, the Jackson Five, Waylon Jennings, Billy Joel, Cindy Lauper, Huey Lewis, Kenny Loggins, Bette Midler, Willie Nelson, Steve Perry was there. That's the best. Pointer Sisters, Smokey Robinson, Kenny Rogers, Diana Ross, Paul Simon, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, Stevie Wonder. I mean, come on. Every single one of those people are Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. I mean, how huge was was that? And only on top of that, Hall and Oates were there and Oates' mustache was there. So we actually know for sure that Julio Oates' mustache uh, was involved and contributed to We Are the World by USA for Africa. And we're going to have Oates' mustache on the show very soon to discuss his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And we will ask him about what he did about, uh, on We Are the World. Uh, this raised $60 million for famine relief in Africa in the first five years after the song's released. And uh, a couple months after it came out, 5,000 radio stations around the world played We Are the World at the same time to set the Guinness Book of World Records for the most listened song by the highest number of people, people, at the same time. And this is back when when when, when, when people bought uh, 45s and singles. There was a tribute album that came out. So this sold millions and millions of copies and was one of the biggest, most influential charity songs of all time. And... If you've never seen the We Are the World SNL parody from about 1985, there's another one they did with J-Lo in 2010 because this song has been redone over the the years by different generations of pop stars. Nothing can beat that first generation. and It's worth the price of admission alone to see um, (laughs) Jim Belushi as Bruce Springsteen. It's super funny. So um, that's worth checking out. I think think maybe like Martin Short was Paul Simon or something like that. So... Very, very, very well done. Actually, no. Jim Belushi was Willie Nelson, and Gary Kroger was Bruce Springsteen. So it's it's worth checking out, if you can find it on the YouTube. Then, 1985, later on in the year, Metal, Heavy Metal, said, listen, we're not going to be left out of this. And Dio's band, Jimmy Bain and Vivian Campbell, wrote the tune, and Ronnie James Dio came aboard. Even though it was uh, interfering with his uh, the recording for his third record, Sacred Heart, Ronnie said, listen, I'm going to put this aside and get involved with this. So Ronnie wrote all the lyrics 
and Vivian Jimmy wrote the tune, and then they went out to try and get all of the different bands that they could find. Once again, the who's who of heavy metal in 1985. Ted Nugent, Ingve Malmsteen, dudes from Rough Cut, Rob Halford from Priest, Smith and Murray from Maiden, Kevin Dubrow from Quiet Riot, Don Dawkin, Vince Neil, uh, guys from Blue Oyster Cult, Jeff Tate, Neil Sean, Blackie Lawless, Brad Gillis, David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap. I mean, what more do you need? Uh, but the, the story is, is that they tr- they were trying to get Bon Jovi. Dio was trying to get Bon Jovi. It said it took him 13 calls to get to Bon Jovi, and Bon Jovi turned it down. So it's a collective talk is Jericho to Bon Jovi for not showing up for hearing aid. Come on, John. Selfish dink. Why would you not have showed up to help with the, the starving children? Double raspberry. For JBJ on that one. Vocals by Dio, Halford, Dubrow, Tate, Dawkins, Shortino. And then the uh, they had a big group. The, the big thing with, with, with all three of these is that they had the big group chorus. So there would be like 50, uh, 50 people all kind of in a room together singing. And um, apparently Kevin Dubrow from Quiet Riot, who was kind of a obnoxious, egotistical, Dio knew that this guy was going to be a problem, so he made the the executive decision to put Dubrow, quote-unquote, in charge of the chorus. So by Dubrow thinking that he was in charge, okay, guys, we're going to sing it in three, he then was not a problem. See, the, the psychological manipulations of Ronnie James Dio, amazing, amazing stuff. Interesting, too, in the chorus, Blackie Lawless was in there and Vince Neil. Neither one of them got to sing a solo line. Maybe they weren't good enough. I don't know. And then they had like this four-minute guitar solo with Vivian Campbell, Carlos Cavazzo, Brad Gillis, Craig Goldie, George Lynch, Malmsteen, Neil Sean, Eddie Oyeta, all of them just shredding like mofos. And Adrian Smith and Dave Murray from Iron Maiden were like, we're not going to compete with that. So they just came up with this little harmony part that went in the background of the chorus that was one of the best things of the show, proving to all aspiring guitar players listening right now that it's not what you play, it's what you don't play. Words of wisdom from Y2J right here. So that went on to make uh, $1 million, not as much as the others, but still a million bucks is a million bucks. But apparently that session was insane. Uh, there was reports that in the Band-Aid session that the guys from Status Quo busted out a bag of cocaine and everyone had a great time, went nuts. But apparently the hearing aid one, as you would expect, this heavy metal in the 80s was, was completely insane. Apparently there was chicks all over the place, dudes getting blown from under the, the control desk, you know, coke and quaaludes and morphine and tranquilizers and booze, booze, booze. And what else would you expect? God bless the guys from Hearing Aid to get completely schwackered out of their minds to put together a uh, tribute for all of the starving kids around the world. So amazing, amazing stuff. Go on YouTube to watch the videos for all three of these songs. Hearing Aid, the song was called Stars. Band-Aid, the song was called Do They Know It's Christmas. USA for Africa was called We Are the World. And God bless all those guys. And the sad thing is, Bob Geldof is still alive, obviously, but Michael Jackson and Ronnie James Dio have both passed away. So two out of the three architects of these uh, amazing charity uh, songs have now passed away. And God bless uh, Ronnie and Michael. And God bless all of you. we got Eli Roth coming up. Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. You might know him better by his nickname. The Bear Jew. Going to be an amazing, amazing show. But first... The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to Talk is Jericho in the studio with right now a good friend of mine. I haven't seen him in a while. It's been a few years. Eli Roth is here. Good morning, Chris, or afternoon. I don't even know what time it is. I don't know where I am. I just literally <laughs> woke up after a serious blackout and ran over here. I'm so sorry. I'm late. Now, this is, we're recording this the day after the Oscars, and yes. Eli is still in his tuxedo, literally in his tuxedo. <laughs> and we will take a picture of this to, to, to show you guys. There's a button. So a, a button. Chris, There's a, a Chris is a great friend. He's been so good to me. I was so excited to do this. I don't know what happened. I got like chocolate wasted last <laughs> night at the Oscar parties. I got a ticket to the Oscars, and then we went to the Vanity Fair party, and then we went to the Madonna party. I don't know what. I have no idea what time I left. All I know is my phone went dead, and I literally woke up and it was twelve ten, and I like <laughs> I had to scramble and find a cab and run over here. I'm, I'm in my tuxedo. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. I walk. I walked in the office building. People were like, "What the hell happened to that dude?" Yeah, it was like a walk of shame for a guy. Version. It's literally. It's from Madonna's house, too. It's, you might have banged her. We don't even know. It might have happened. God, I don't even know what happened at Madonna's house last night. It's literally like you'd think I'd be distinguished, like a distinguished <laughs> right. gentleman in a tuxedo, but at one in the afternoon on a Monday, it's just <laughs> yeah. sad. It's like it's, you just got out of jail or something. Literally. Well, hey, it's funny because the last time or the only time I ever spent a night in jail for a DUI was coming from your birthday party. A hostile DVD release hostile, birthday That's party. right, birthday the party. the worst thing ever. I felt so terribly. I was like, Chris came and supported the DVD release of Hostel, and then they're like, DUI. And I remember you yeah. telling me that whole story. Like, they process you like it took a long freaking time. 14 hours I was in jail. When I walked out, I was wearing some nice clothes because I'd just been to your birthday party. It wasn't a tuxedo, mind you, but it was the same thing. And I felt just like you because I had to go to a meeting for some show that I was doing at the time. I can't remember what it was. So I felt the same vibe as you I had. I felt hard, but literally I woke up. I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen Chris in forever. It's, a sad, <laughs> it's sad that we're getting together only because of a podcast. I, but I've been in South America shooting. You've been doing your thing. And literally, I just woke up and I was like, I, I can't believe this happened to me. I actually woke up. I like blacked out. I stayed at a friend's house. It was oh, crazy. It's a, it's, it's a good it's, night, though. It's I will very, tell you that. It was a freaking great night. It's very apropos that we met, we met this way. I, it wouldn't have it any other way, my friend. Only other way. So how was it being at the Oscars? I mean, what a, what a great night that was. It was actually really fun oh, to it was, watch. It was exciting. You know, I'm very close with David or Russell, and mm-hmm. we're writing a movie together. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted him to win screenplay or something. And he walked away empty handed and he was just great. He was, yeah. he couldn't have been cooler about it. He was like obviously bummed that he lost, but he's like so happy about the success of American Hustle. You know, I, I wasn't planning on going. And a friend of mine called and she said, We got an extra ticket. Paramount hooked me up. So I was like wow. sitting with all the Paramount people. We had a great time. Here's the thing you don't eat. So you're like getting ready from like two o'clock in the afternoon, and after the commercial break, you're like, okay, let's go to the bar. And I was with Jack Houston, uh-huh. who's in Boardwalk Empire, he plays Richard with yeah. half the face, and everyone there, and we're all like, oh yeah, let's have a drink, let's have a drink. And you don't freaking realize it, but you are you're like wasted by the next award. So when they're doing the in memoriam tribute, and they're all, they're all like, people are died, you're like drunk and making jokes. It's terrible, like awful, right? Inappropriate, like it was awful. I was like, oh my god, did I just say that out loud? But <laughs> But um, it was a, it, you know, look, it was it was great to be at the ceremony. And then afterwards, everyone kind of goes to different parties. And mm-hmm. we, we went and uh, like our car that we had, we lost our car, got separated. There wasn't a pass for us. 
David or Russell wasn't sure what he was doing, so we jumped with John Travolta. Wow. So I'm with Colleen, my friend Colleen Camp, her daughter Emily, and John Travolta and Kelly Preston, and their daughter, Ella... And they, they had a Bentley that seats four, but literally seven of us crammed into John Travolta's Bentley. I'm like, this is what happens in Hollywood. You just, and it's by the way, high school dance. Dude, it's Hollywood high. I literally, okay, here's the best part. I'm with John Travolta in a car, and all I was doing was Bobarino impressions. I was like, <laughs> I'm so confused. I'm so discombobulated. And Kelly Preston was like, that's a great impression, John. John's like, yeah, it's really good. No, I mean, John doesn't talk like that. <laughs> it's really weird. He's, it's so weird. I kept saying that. It's so weird. It's really weird. It's so, and I got to ask him, about, It's it's a, by the way, I'm literally the worst person to be trapped in a car with because I was like, dude, tell me about Ellen Travolta on Charles in Charge. And you've never met him before. I'd met him once okay, so a now- year ago, so I didn't really know him. But right. all I could, I, I had to pull the, well, we're Tarantino alumni card. I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Paul hey. And he's like, yeah, Quentin hasn't put me in anything since Pulp Fiction. I'm like, I know. What the hell, man? Let's, <laughs> let's call Quentin right now. It was like just, just drunk stupidity. But Travolta couldn't have been cooler and sort of waltzed us into the Vanity Fair party. And there, everyone was was there partying, having a good time. And from there, we went to Madonna, and the, the rest is a blackout. So you got to be pretty high up on the food chain to get into Madonna's party. Is that because you're with David O. Russell or because you're with Travolta? He kind of... Of course. Yeah. You have to be with it. Like, unless... It's basically for... I mean, obviously, you have to be friends with them or... And I don't I don't know Madonna. I mean, I saw her last <laughs> night in a weird moment. No, we, we went to... It's at her manager, Guy O'Siri's house. So mm-hmm. we go to Guy's house. And I met Guy before, and he's very cool. And because I'm with Travolta, we just, we just walk right in. It's like not even an issue. And and Kelly Preston needed to change her clothes, so we go into Guy O'Siri's bathroom, and I'm there, and there's like four sinks, like it's an amazing bathroom, like the size of anyone's bedroom. We're like, wow, this is great, and then we're there, and we're like, all five of us are like washing our hands at once, and Kelly's changing her clothes, and we're we're sort of like doing like a reboot to get ready for the next <laughs> wave of partying. This is like three in the morning, and then Madonna comes in, and she is doing an outfit change. And we're like, sorry for being in your bathroom. And she was like, yeah, it was, it was in her and John were joking around. It was all good. But I was like, this is, this is what happens. It was, I was like, why aren't I filming this? That's the problem is I wish I had that Google Glass camera in my head where I could like tap my forehead and film it. And I was, I was like watching Madonna and John Travolta joke around Talk. about how we're like occupying her bathroom. It was just ultimate. It was the ultimate Hollywood stupidity. It was awesome. When I did Dance with the Stars, I went to Kirstie Alley's house because she has like all these animals there. She actually has a game warden on her property because she has all these lemurs and monkeys and all this stuff. And my kids wanted to go check them out. And Kelly Preston was there. And dude, I flipped. Like when I was 14, Kelly Preston, like my secret admirer and twins, I told yeah. her, I was like, you, know, you were so hot when I was in high school and I just always wanted to date you. And I'm like, what do you stop? Stop talking. Shut up, you idiot. But you can't help it. You can't help it. You yeah, know? And by the way, do you know what's cool about Travolta and Preston, who I had never hung out with? Like, they were like, yeah, pile in our car. It was uncomfortable. They were they were so cool. And John Travolta put up with more of my questions from Blowout <laughs> than, like, you couldn't even believe it. I was asking him about Carrie. I was asking him about Blowout. I was asking about, like, everything. I didn't bring a boy in the bubble, but he totally would have gone with it. Like, sure. I couldn't believe it. He was so... <laughs> Freaking funny and cool, and you're just like we were like whatever we're with John Travolta, and then we're like it's like drunk red carpet to get into Vanity Fair, and I'm talking about he told me about how, how literally he was the best uh, like bar mitzvah dancer when he was 13 <laughs> years old when that was the summer like he used to go to, like to bar mitzvahs and be like the king of dancing, and I was telling him that how when I went to bar mitzvahs all I did was steal John Travolta moves was do like the Saturday Night Fever move, and now I go to thing I do like and like the Pulp Fiction dancing, and he was so Travolta's Jewish. 
No, he is not. Oh, that's the weird thing. He just went to, but he was he grew up in New Jersey, so like he just gotcha. was going to bar mitzvahs. See, this is what's funny about about seeing you. Like I met you, I think in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, yeah. and you were Jeff just Katz. just starting. Pre hostel, wasn't it? It was pre hostel, and as a matter of fact, oh. I used to stay at your place sometimes when it's I was the best. in town. I remember that you had put out cabin fever, and I remember literally you saying we were downstairs in that downstairs basement room yep. that you had, and you're like, I got this idea for a movie. And it's going to have this thing where these guys go to, you know, Czechoslovakia to, to, you know, pick up chicks, but then they end up getting tortured. And you, I remember you specifically telling this story about the Japanese girl and the eye and cutting the eye and her getting hit by a train. Like that early on, you still had these ideas and you were just getting started. Like, look how far you've come. And look at me stumbling in from the Oscar party (laughs) in a tuxedo (laughs) after a blackout where I woke up. I literally didn't know where I was. But you have done so many things. Like you've done, you started. But but so have you, because I'm like, first of all, it's so good to see you here, man. I know, man. Congratulations on the podcast. Because literally you were one of my favorite people. Thanks, man. And I remember when you come to LA, because Jeff Katz was like, you got to meet Chris Jericho. You guys would get along. And we obsessed over American movie and horror movies yes and obviously wrestling and hockey like such shocking iron, iron, maiden. iron maiden like yeah. we go see maiden and gnr together like we did yeah such awesome like shockingly similar upbringings in yeah. different parts of the world brother from another mother and my, obviously my brother gabe and then you coming and staying at my house and it was all it was all pre-hostile but like then you're like yeah i'm gonna write a book i'm like oh that's so awesome Christopher. <laughs> now you're on your third book and you've done freaking anything like that's what I, what what's so cool about you is that i think it's it sort of goes for both of us is that we kind of do whatever we want. Right. And we don't ask anyone's permission. And no one said, okay, you can be an actor now or you can be as this now. You have to, you are just this. And you're like, no, I'm going to yes. take my band. I'm going to open, I'm going to, like, Fozzie's a serious band. Yeah. I remember watching the Fozzie being like, that's the funniest thing ever. And seeing you continue it and watching your music grow and your singing grow and getting the vocal coach and everything you've done to really, like, it's, it's so, it makes me so happy. Well, I was thinking about that. And thank you for that. And I was thinking about that when you were coming over is that we really, really did kind of have parallel paths in that you go and become one of the hottest directors in Hollywood and then go into acting. Switch it up. Go Completely into like, yeah, why not? So Let's many do things. Like, just change it up. Yeah, and, do whatever we feel like and doing. And that, I always thought, like, you know, obviously we haven't seen each other, but always keeping in touch and keeping an eye on what you've been doing. And yeah. it's really cool because, like you said, you do whatever you want. And it's always good. If, you, if an Eli Roth's name is on it. It's always quality Thanks, in man. all the different genres well, that you that you've had. I try to. It's hard as a producer to mm-hmm. keep that stamp without taking over. I got to be honest. It's it's like it's frustrating. You know, I remember like on Last Exorcism two, it mm-hmm. didn't it didn't turn out with the way like exactly what we wanted and the script we had. But also, you know what? Like I I feel really lucky. I feel blessed. Like I've had a great and and then people came to me to to co write things like RZA with Man with the Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. He's like. I want to do a, a martial arts movie, and I think Russell Crowe will be in it, and let's take it to Quentin. So we wrote The Man with the Iron Fist together. And we're like, what? Like, it was so out mm-hmm. of my comfort mm-hmm. zone. And I thought, yeah, I don't know anything about writing a martial arts movie, so what's the best way to learn? Let's write a martial arts movie. <laughs> and then, you know, I've been in Chile with, uh, recently with the movie Aftershock, and now my new one, um, The Green Inferno, that's going to come out in September. Mm-hmm. We shot that in the Amazon in Peru, like literally. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Insane. I mean, there's, there's so many. You, you and I talk so fast that it's hard to jump Just in. Shut but, me up. But but tell us about the Green Inferno. One of the things that when we first met, we we'd go to Amoeba and like, oh, you got to buy this movie or buy that movie. I remember you got me into uh, a Battle Royal and got me into what was the other one? The Who Japanese can kill one? a child or the grudge. I can't. The, yeah. the, the one, Suicide Club, maybe. Which is the one where the where Spiral Uzumaki? Uzumaki. Yeah. The audition. 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 Course, that one great. was so sick. 
But um, what what is it like? We always talked about Cannibal Holocaust. It was like you know this movie is it real? Is it not real? We weren't sure, and then found out that it was just kind of you know the, the, it was a, a movie based around cannibals in the South American jung- jungle yeah. somewhere from the seventies. Now here we are, and you've filmed your homage to it. What what? How did you start thinking about doing Green Inferno? And tell us about just how far into the depths of the jungles you went. It was insane. I mean, I love the old movies of Cannibal Holocaust. I remember as a kid, you'd, you'd go to the video store and try and find the nastiest box. Yeah. And it was like, make them die slowly. We're like, oh, this is awesome. Spit on your grave. Yeah. But, but make them die slowly in Cannibal Holocaust and eaten alive. There was a whole, I, was, I realized that there was a whole wave of these movies of these cannibal movies that kind of came out of Italy. They passed themselves off as American because they're all in English, but they were dubbed. But they used the same actors and a mm-hmm. lot of the similar locations. They sort of felt like one long movie. And it took me years to kind of watch them and learn the difference between Alberto Lenzi, Ruggiero Deodato, Sergio Martino. I like did, I did like an exploration to discern which movie is which and mm-hmm. watch them in order. And I thought, God, there's something about these movies that is so... Dangerous, like you. These people now, when you make a movie, everyone's in a studio. Pretty much everything is very safe. These people went into the jungle, and it looks like they filmed with actual tribes mm-hmm. people. And I thought, could you do that? And I started researching tribes in the Amazon and uncontacted tribes. And there are a lot. There's about a hundred different tribes that are quote uncontacted. That there's satellite photos of them, so people know that they're there. But no, modern man has never reached them. But mm-hmm. it's all coming to an end. There's you can see it on Yahoo and Treehugger.com have videos. People now with iPhones and smartphones are going in and taking videos of these people that, that have never seen modern man before. Right, and it's really straight out of National Geographic. And so, we, so what I wanted to do was make a movie about student activists, like really smart New York City kids, kind of like. It was very much inspired by Coney 2012 and Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. where kids, and, and on sort of this Twitter activism that I call slacktivism, where basically mm-hmm. people just hit the retweet button. Nobody yeah, really yeah, yeah, knows right. the cause. They're like, like stuff on Facebook. And they're like, okay, that's, I've done my part. Yeah. And I wanted to make a movie about kids that want to do the right thing, but get involved in a cause they really don't know that much about. And mm-hmm. they go to save the deforestation in the Amazon and protect this tribe and chain themselves to trees. And so we went to Peru, into the Amazon. And we did it exactly how they do it. Like literally how these kids that protest, when they protest developments, they you know blow up the trucks and chain themselves to trees. And they do it and it works. And it shuts the, it shuts the construction down. And then on the way home, their plane crashes. And they're taken hostage by the people. that They're like darted and taken hostage by the tribe that they saved. And they just start getting eaten. And they're like, but we're your saviors. We're your saviors. <laughs> and we, we went and we filmed in this village. We went to this village called Kayanayaku in Peru. And we, I literally, the way I found it was I just got in a, in a boat, in a motorboat, like a, like a 60 You did this yourself? Car. Yeah. I you're, just did it. You're like Warner Herzog. By the way, Aguirre, The Wrath of God was the last movie that shot there. They, wow. call, they call it the Pongo Aguirre. And I said, that's what I want. I want to make a Werner Herzog movie. And we got in the boat and we went up and literally I just see a hut, like a grass hut. This is hours up the Amazon. Mm-hmm. And finally, we come to a grass hut and I'm like, what is that? Like, that's a village. I said, Can we go over there? So with my Peruvian producers, obviously I'm not going to go and talk to these people. We pull up and there's like a girl washing clothes and like someone comes out of a hut. They live in straw huts. And we come out and it's, it's like I'm the first white person that they've seen. And wow. I'm, I'm like pretty, like I passed for South American pretty easily, <laughs> yeah. but I was a gringer for them. And I said, can we shoot in this village? And they said, well, we have to explain to them what a movie is. They've never seen a television before. There's no electricity. Here. There's That's no- insane. Dude, it was, dude, 
I'm telling you, these kids had never seen ice cubes before. Like, we brought out a cooler with drinks and ice cubes, and the whole village gathered around. And they knew what it was, but they never seen it before. Because there's no electricity, so there's no refrigeration, and it's 100 degrees there most of the year. So we, we had to conceptually, like, and so the producers went back a week later, and there's 300 people in the village. They talked to the leaders. There's, like, four elders of the village they had to speak to. And they brought a generator and a television, and they showed the whole village cannibal holocaust. So there's literally five-year-old kids in Peru. They're, if you ask them what is a movie, they're like, oh, that's a movie where you chop. That's the thing where people pretend to chop people up and eat people. Why would they show them kind of Holocaust? Because they wanted the villagers to know this is probably the worst case scenario. We're, oh. going, we're not filming romantic comedy. Like <laughs> People are going to be chopped up and eaten, and it's going to be violent. And, uh. and in Peru, they're horror crazy. Like Paranormal Activity, the, the latest movie, Paranormal, yeah. premiered there. Like Peru is insane for horror. So the whole village, they were very smart. Like they got it. They knew that it was pretend. So our production designer, Marici, goes to this village like a week before anything that was sort of modern, like anything metal roofing or concrete floors. She, she kind of art directed it out. And after three weeks, they're like, Marici, we have a gift for you. It's right before shooting. And they handed her a baby. She's <laughs> like, what? excuse me? There's like, here, it's like a three year old kid. They handed her a baby. That, that was to the, keep. To give her. They're just like, no, take it back to Chile. And Marici was like, oh, I'm I'm like 28 and like live with my boyfriend. Wow. Like this is, real. but it was that they were like, this is this is the kind of gift. So so to film there, we would get up at five in the morning. You get in the van and you go to Chazutas. I remember like you you literally Miguel's cousin. They're like, yeah, go to the boat at Chazutas and Miguel's cousin will take you. Then we get in six different little boats with all of our equipment and we go an hour and a half up the river. And we unload everything at seven thirty eight in the morning, and we and we filmed there all day. And at four o'clock or five o'clock, we had to return. Wow. We had to get back on the river before dark, otherwise we were stuck. We had to bring overnight bags in case there was flooding or the rock slides, and we got stuck in the village. Like every day that we were shooting, we thought, okay, we could potentially get stuck here. Now, for are weeks. these people cannibals? <laughs> no, but okay. you know, can I tell you something? There were these old women. They're sort of like the witches in Macbeth. We called them the pussycat dolls. <laughs> they were like ninety years old, and when it came to the scene, if they were sort of preparing the food, and when it came to like cutting the flesh. The makeup effects guys from KMB were like, okay, so you're going to cut. And they were like, no, 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 we got this. And it was weird. Ooh. They knew exactly how to cut up a body. Wow. It was pretty funny. But, the, but dude, the first day we were filming there, it's, it's the scene where the kids are darted. And it's, it's supposed to look like complete uncontacted man. You're, you're entering the mouth of hell. These kids are pulled in canoes and they wake up and they're just like, there's heads on spikes and dead bodies. I want it to be like Colonel Kurtz's village in Vagos now. <laughs> yeah. And as we're about to start shooting, we're literally there and we hear this noise and two boats of like Christian missionaries pull up at the village from a super church in Texas with Peru, with South American wow. missionaries and they see the heads on the spikes and they start like singing about like Jesus and the <laughs> devil and God and they were like the devil is in this village the devil is in this village I was like you can't yeah, hello. you couldn't yeah. script this we to, like, and I was like oh, let, me, let me film it and they were like no 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 we gotta like tell them we're filming a movie and uh -huh. they were furious wow they were like the bear you beat us they, they couldn't believe it they were like <laughs> It was cool, but it was crazy. Like you, you have this crazy bond with the people in the village, I and mean, we changed their lives. We, we, the way we paid them. We, we. How paid, did you pay them? Well, that was a very good question. We thought, well, we can give them money. We, we gave them money, but a lot of the people couldn't even get anywhere to spend the money because you're literally. In the they Amazon. don't have boats, or no, there are boats that go around. To, we were gonna, we were gonna buy the village a boat. But then the question is, who gets to ride in the boat? And how oh, do they yeah, do the yeah. gas? It became a problem. So we paid them. And these people, like the old people in the village, were like, we're making, you know, they made more money in a week than they would have in an entire year of working. Mm -hmm. So they were so happy. And they loved it. Like, everyone in the village participated in the movie. 
And we also pay them by giving them metal roofs for their houses. So hmm. there were 103 houses. They're like, what we really need are metal roofs for the rainy season. Wow. So we roofed the entire village. That was how we paid them. But it was, it was insane. I what mean, an adventure. Oh, it was, it was totally. How, how long was it? Did you, did you film? We, we were in five weeks in the jungle. It was hardcore. It was everybody had to get yellow fever shots and malaria pills. And people got, ve- people got sick. We had to get de-parasited after we left. Wow. Because we were all like, swimming in the river. And then they're like, oh, you know, there's parasites. You need to take anti-parasitic wow. medication. It was insane. It was, and then we went back in Chile and we finished the shooting. But it was, it was one of those adventures where, thank God, no one died. But we couldn't even get we couldn't even get insurance. I mean, they, they insured they the, like the policy went through after we mm-hmm. left the Amazon because no one would insure us. I mean, we were, we were in rivers. There was no if anything went wrong, you're on a boat in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There's, there's no phones. There's no helicopters. There's nothing. It's literally jungle. And then there was one day where the river rose. There was a flood in the Andes two days away. So the river rose, and we're in our canoes and just like getting getting to and from set was absolutely terrifying. It was like you're on some kind of water. You ride at a water park. But the rapids were so bad, I was like, this is it. Like, if any of these boats dump, there's literally no yeah, way to no save anyone. no way to save anyone. Everyone get pulled under by the current. And people from the village drown all the time. I mean, the canoes are carved out of trees. So if they want to go to another village, they cut down a tree and carve a canoe. The thing that was great was, if we were, if we were thirsty, I'd be like, Omer, there's a kid, Homer, who worked in the yard, who was like 14. I was like, can I have a coconut? He's like, si, senor. And they spoke Quechua and Spanish. And the kids, he would put a machete between his teeth and like shimmy up <laughs> a freaking coconut tree, like 40 feet, hack down a coconut. And there you go, fresh coconut water. <laughs> and by the way, there were like bulls, and the kids would come up to me and be like, I'd, they, I'd turn around, and they'd have a freaking, they had a python. They're like, do you want this for the for the movie? Wow. I was like, what? <laughs> they were like, yeah, we just had a python. Like, we just found it. Like, anything you, like, that kind of stuff. Wow. Like, sure, we'll get a python. And the Azula ants are terrifying. If the Azula ants bite you, it's like getting a gunshot for 24 hours. People go insane from the bites. So, so like, you could see the villagers would freak out. Are they big? They're, they're like an inch. They're oh, like, my gosh. Yeah, the dude. Amazon Azula. Yeah, it was it was scary. Like, you, it, and then we, we, we brought one porta potty out in one of the boats. So, like, so the crew could have a, like, there yeah. was a hole in the ground in the woods, but yeah. there was one porta potty. And if the girls went to use it, they had to keep guard because there were wild horses in the village that would just come over and, like, kick the porta potty if you were in it. It was like, let me stand guard for the wild horses. <laughs> Bulls and cows walking through. You shut your about to shoot, and it's like <laughs> freaking bull just walks. Like okay, what an adventure! Dude. Did it's you have insane. a studio funding with that? No, that? we we did it independently. That's what was really cool. This company, Worldview Entertainment, they paid for this and this movie, The Sacrament, that I produced, and we shot it. So we, we did it independently. We took it to the Toronto Film Festival, and we we got a huge sale. And Open Road's going to do like a massive. When is it released? September fifth. Wow, man. Yeah, because I've heard about it for a while and seen all like the promo shots and stuff. But that is amazing. Thanks, dude. Like, what an adventure. You know, like that's that. You know, it's funny because that reminds me of another story that you told me that I want. I want you to tell me again now. Another adventure you had where you almost died with the sea urchins and, and yeah. Like you are, you are Werner Herzog. You like turned into Richard Branson. You're like man of adventure. No, I don't want to be like one of those balloonists that like goes missing and <laughs> dies of hypoxia from lack of oxygen. So what have? Tell us about the story when you got caught in your own canoe in the was it in Mexico or it was something? In Mexico. Yeah, that was terrifying. That I was with. It was right after Inglorious Bastards, kind of before yeah. the Oscar. So it was, it was. And this is a real story. This really happened. This is not one of his movies. No, this was in 2009, in December of 2009. Quentin's like, hey man, I got a village in Correa's, Mexico. Let's go. That's where I filmed Kill Bill. So we go to this Correas, Mexico, beautiful. I'd never been. And like it's it's a group of like five or six of us, close friends. We kinda of go down to Mexico. Quentin's like, my treat, I'm taking care of everything. So we go there and I'm swimming and I'm with his friend Caitlin and we're like swimming around 
and we're kind of tired and there's this this kayak that's just in the middle of the ocean we kind of it's buoyed and we sit there and a fisherman comes by and he's like hey do you want to if you guys want to basically says if you guys want to use my kayak just to kind of go around a little bit sure go ahead so we kind of climb in the kayak and we take and we're going but we we went really pretty far out which was very stupid because he thought we were just kind of going around you know by the beach and the we didn't realize there was a hole in the kayak in the nose of it so inside the plastic kayak is starting to fill up with water Mm. So very soon, we're in the middle of the ocean, and the frickin' kayak sinks. Mm-hmm. And Caitlin, obviously, we, we kind of start freaking out, and we just, like, just kind of scream for the beach. We've gone around the corner, so nobody can see us. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I scuba dive, and there's like sharks out here and sea urchins. So I kind of start swimming, and basically, what happens is that the tide starts coming in, the current starts coming in, so we're like now getting thrown around by waves. We can't go anywhere. And I see these rocks, and I'm like, we have to swim for these rocks. She's like, they're sea urchins. I'm like, basically, our choice now is swim out into open water and hope someone sees us and possibly get eaten by sharks, Mm -hmm. or go to those rocks where we know we can climb on a rock, but it's covered in sea urchins. So I'm still trying to save this guy's canoe, so I tie it to my arm, and I get to a (laughs) rock, and I help her up, and I'm like, you okay? And I'm about to get up, and the current pulls the kayak and pulls me off the rock headfirst into the water. I could have been killed. Wow. I went under the water. It was the scariest moment of my life. I got pulled under the water for about, it must have been With 10 seconds. With the canoe seconds. tied to your... With the kayak kinda. wrapped, yeah, like the, the, the rope from the kayak wrapped around my arm. And I pop up and I look and I just see this wall of water coming at me, like a 12-foot wave. And I just sort of use the momentum of the, of the current. To, I look and there's sea urchins and I scramble up. Now, sea urchins look like koosh balls, but they are filled with these spikes. Yeah, they're like the round things with they're the spikes. Ra- they look them. like black koosh balls, and the spikes break off in your hands. Imagine like a thousand pencils breaking off in your hands and underneath your feet. It was, I was scrambling up so fast. I had 300, and I literally, I get to the top of this rock, and it's covered in crabs. It was like Starship Troopers. The crabs look at me like, what is this furry, hairy, freaking thing doing on a rock? And they freak out. And, and so we start, like, screaming, and someone else on the beach kind of notices us from the rocks, and they come out, and they, they rescue us. And, like, they, were, they, they said, you have to come over here. You can't jump in the water. The current's too strong. Jump over here. So I had to crab walk. I couldn't even walk. I had to literally, me and the crabs are, like, crab walking around. And then I, I was with, I remember... Geraldine, who's Quentin's camera assistant, we go to, she speaks Spanish, she's Argentine, and we went, we go to, it's like a clinic, it's not even a hospital, and we're in the middle, we're in Can Correa's. you walk with all these urchins? No, not at all. I kind of hobble yeah. onto the sand, and some guy's like, hey, Bear Jew, Tarantino, and I'm like <laughs> crying, I'm bleeding out of my hands and feet, and they're drunk. So they're like, they assume I just went for a swim, and I'm like coughing up water, like like vomiting up seawater, and they're like, yeah, bear you, awesome, can you take a photo? And I'm like doing photos, it was awful. So we go to the clinic, and the woman just says to me, and it's all translated to Geraldine, she goes, Geraldine goes, she wants to know which one you want out, and imagine 300 pencils broken mm-hmm. off in the palm of your hands, and I was like, can you get all of them out? And they're like, no, there's there's just no way, we don't... We're not like, it's it's like too much. You have too many. So I was like, just get the big one. So she starts picking them out. Oh. It was the most, and I go, do you have like, can you give me a shot or anything to numb my hands or feet? And she just goes, be brave. <laughs> it's not what you want to hear from a doctor when you're about to have like, literally they have like tweezers and scalpel and, and needles to pick stuff out and they just go, be brave. It's hostile the, three. It was, dude. It was literally hostile three. It was the bottom of my feet. It was underside of your feet. It was oh. so horrible. And then I, so we go back to the villa where I'm staying with Quentin, and he's like, he was like great and super cool. 
And the only way I could deal with it was to just like smoke weed and like mm-hmm. slowly pick these things out of my feet. Well, Quentin read stories to me. It's like, I'll read you stories. So I was oh. like, hi, pick it. And I don't smoke weed a lot, but I was like, it was in so much pain. I was like, all right, oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, dude. Yeah, it was pretty awful. And then I had to have surgery at UCLA. Dr. Suhu took the Because everyone's like, oh, they'll, they'll dissolve. They'll dissolve. Well, not really. It's like this thing was like half an inch long. And it was like having a metal spike in my foot. And if I stepped the wrong way, it was literally like stepping on a tack. So you had to get them all surgically removed. The last one, there were like I, I got X-rays, I got surgically removed. It was the worst. It's oh. horrible, dude. Like I said, that sounds, fault, like something, sounds like something out of one of your movies. I know it's where my ideas come from. <laughs> Usually, I make the movie and then I live it. I'm like, oh, why did I do that? This is karma. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. Eli Roth here, still wearing his tuxedo, stumbling in. Out of Madonna's party, the true Hollywood experience. By the way, I love that this is the image you have of me. This has never happened. I'm very responsible. I always go home, but I didn't have a car. And, you know, when you're rolling with John Travolta at Madonna at six, I didn't even realize it was six in the morning. My phone died. It was a good time. <laughs> well, hey, it was like a I great said, party. I-, I couldn't be one to talk because I remember calling you to try and uh, give me legal counsel on trying to get myself out of my DUI. Hey, dude, can you write these guys a letter and say I was at your party? So, yeah, we are bad influences on each other, I guess. I know. It was a Chris Jer- I, I guess that I knew I was doing your podcast, so I was, you had was to, like, yeah. let me come in with a good story for him. Now, you mentioned uh, Tarantino. I know you guys are good friends. And even to the point where you mentioned the Bear Jew a bunch of times, you were in Inglorious Bastards, which if you take Pulp Fiction out of the mix, which you always have to do, it could be his best movie ever. Uh, I think it was just an Thanks, amazing, man. amazing movie. It was awesome to be a part of Plus, it. Plus, you were great in, in Death Proof as well. How did you hook up with Tarantino as one of his actors? It's weird. Quentin, lo- Quentin loved Cabin Fever. Okay. And I have that one part in Cabin Fever as the stoner. Justin. That I play, Justin, awesome, awesome. Where I'm literally moded. moded. Where I'm doing an impression of this kid from high school. Um, and he, uh, Quentin loved it. Quentin thought it was the best thing ever, which I thought was very strange and mm-hmm. fun and hilarious. Because I kind of, it was, it was going to be Michael Rosenbaum, mm. who I want you to meet. Because you guys have very similar interests in okay. hockey and music. And Rosenbaum couldn't do it because he was on Smallville and he sort of blew up oh, and just yeah. couldn't get out of like shooting Smallville stuff. So I wound up playing the part and Quentin loved it. And he's like, you got to do part in Death Proof. So I remember I was prepping Hostel 2 and I flew to Austin for one week. I was like, from Czechoslovakia? Yeah, it was from, we were in the Czech Republic. We were were in Prague and I flew to Austin to prep it. And then we, uh, you know, he was so happy with Death Proof. He's like, you got my dialogue. You understand it. And obviously I had like inside baseball. It was like insider trading because yeah. I had heard him rate, read the scene. So I knew I wanted it done. But <laughs> I mean, he like read me the scene. He's like, can you audition it? And I'm like, okay, let me just do it exactly. Like yeah, right, right. Um, but he, but that really became my audition for Inglourious Bastards. And I remember when, when he was, I remember when he wrote, I remember like 10 years ago, like after Cabin Fever, he mm-hmm. told, he read me some scenes from Bastards with like Hitler being mad about the Bear Jew. And he was like, I was thinking about Adam Sandler for the Bear Jew. That'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. And then Sandler, he just, he's like, you know, I, I got to tell you. 
the more I know you. Because you know I was from Boston, and we, we I would talk in my asshole accent, be like, "Dude, what's up, guy? How are you?" <laughs> um, it's funny. Anyone you see in Hollywood from Boston, like I saw Chris Evans, I'm like, "What's up, kid? How are you, dude?" <laughs> Everybody goes right into the Boston accent, but, but yet you lose it right away. It's like you don't want to have that accent. No, in you don't. Life. You don't. Have, yeah. yeah, but John Cena's like that too. John Cena has the accent, but he never uses it. He's like, "Yeah, okay, yeah. guy." If you run into another Boston, you're like, "Stop, dude." <laughs> so, wicked pisser. Wicked pisser, guy. Okay, kid. Whatever, dude. So Quentin had heard me. He'd actually been at my Passover Seder, and I was while he was writing Bastards, I was kind of his Jewish fact checker. He was like, "Hey, I got a question. Would you give absolution to a Nazi if it meant you would end the war?" And I was like, "Quentin, I didn't know what the word absolution meant until I was 25. <laughs> that is a Catholic concept. Like Jews are money lenders. We're, we we collect interest on everything. We're more mad about." From 2,000 years ago now than we were from 2,000 years ago. I was like, I was like every Nazi, we would eradicate them. If there's a 95-year-old Nazi in the street, we would gun them down. Like, they've mm-hmm. tried to wipe Jews off the planet. Right. Like, I grew, like you got to realize, like, growing up Jewish, whether you like it or not, if you don't finish your dinner, your parents like, you could have been in an oven. Finish your dinner. You, you could have been in an oven in Poland. <laughs> like, all the time. They go right to that. Like, everyone's parents <laughs> be like, I'm tired. Like, oh, <laughs> you know. I want a car. You could have been in an oven in Poland. Okay, sorry, sorry. sorry, like, sorry it's like the, the bus. De- exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it was that. So like, you just grow up with this awareness of yeah, we could have been in an oven in Poland. And Quentin asked me. I remember. I remember when he gave me the part. He he'd been writing and writing. I remember he was seeing everybody like Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen. Everybody was going. Anyone who was Jewish in Hollywood, mm-hmm. Jason Biggs, Ed Re- had gone in to read for Bastards. And he calls me. He's like, "Dude, I'm, I'm about to go to Berlin tomorrow. I'm dying. Can we get some? Do you want to get some food?" I'm like, sure. So I go to dinner. He's like, so here's what I'm thinking with Donowitz. It's, it's not like Death Proof. It's got to be a 360 degree character. It's like, you got to know him like you know your best friend. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying I have the part? And he's like, yeah, yeah. So listen, you got to know him like the way, if you think of your best friend, you got to know Donowitz. I was like, wait, shouldn't we have, like, have a toast or something? He's like, yeah, yeah, cheers. Listen, you got to know Donowitz the way you know. And so like, I was like, if I'm going to do this and actually be on a screen with Brad Pitt and all these other amazing actors, like, I got to bring it. Like, I, I'm going right. to commit myself to full-time training, to only studying this role, to creating this character. And I want to kind of create a, like, a heroic character. Because mm-hmm. usually Jews in movies are like nerdy, nebbish, Woody Allen. Woody yeah. Allen, exactly. I was like, we got to have at least one. We need one that's like the cool <laughs> stuff. Um, and it was great. Quentin really gave me an amazing opportunity. And I also thought, you know what? What a great thing for me as a director. Like, I've directed three movies. Mm. I'm at this amazing point in my career. Like, I, I thought about Jodie Foster. And how Jodie Foster was in Taxi Driver and all these movies. Then she went to Yale Drama School and she comes out and she wins the Oscar for The Accused mm-hmm. for Best Actress. Like to be at that point in your career where you're already established and already successful and go back to school. Right. Is like I, I had such, always had such admiration for those people who kind of relearned their craft when mm-hmm. they were already, you know, already, already established. So right. I wanted to, I thought, you know what? Directing, this will make me a better director. This will make me a better director if I can approach everything as an actor and, and then of course when I got there Quentin's like I was gonna go in October Quentin's like get on a plane right now I need you I want you to shoot Nation's Pride which was the black and white mm. Nazi propaganda right. movie so I wound up like directing and kind of acting in the movie anyways but I, it really changed the way I approached writing the way I approached Green Inferno the way I directed Quentin doesn't use a monitor he stands next to the camera hmm. and I was like don't you want to watch your shots and see your shots he's like that's what I have Bob Richardson for he points, hmm. he points to these guys he's like why do you think like I get cinematographer he's like, the DP yeah, he's yeah. like why do you think I have that guy he's like, the best guy in the world what do you think right. like he's got it yeah, if I yeah, try yeah. like I'll look at the lens and figure it out but if Bob tells me it's good it's good Yeah. and when we got to Peru and we were shooting the Amazon I was like screw this no monitor because I realized I was staring at this little screen it was slowing me down and I ditched it the first day Mm. 
And everyone's like, well, what about, aren't you worried about your shots? And no, I picked up another camera. I started shooting, but Antonio, my DP is great. Like if, if Antonio says we got it, then I trust him. Yeah. And it was the most, the stuff I learned from Quentin as an actor on Inglorious Bastards really, really changed the way I direct. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that, that's a really cool point. Like you said, you'd already gotten to a certain level, but now you kind of went back to school to, to learn some of these things. Yeah, imagine being like, you're being the champ. Yeah. And then going back to like some kind of like absolutely. wrestling program of re- Abs- relearning it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and it paid off because that was one of the most memorable. I mean, you get to kill Hitler. It's the best. Man. No, I remember that question. I mean, your like, parents must have loved you they for They loved that. it. My dad, wrote, <laughs> my dad wrote a piece for the, the Jewish Journal, the one and only piece he's written for them called My Son Killed Adolf Hitler. It was, it was. <laughs> I, I went to that movie with my parents and like ever, and we were all crying. Was, I was there was, at the premiere. Right, I, remember I went that. with was, you. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, there yeah. you are. I mean, that must have been pretty cool from that. a family standpoint. It was just crazy. It was like my my parents. Like you know, first of all, they they were the parents. They were like the second generation. They grew up in New York, but that everyone's parents had come over from Poland. Yeah, the or Shadow Austria. was there. Yeah, yeah, and and so they came to Berlin. They they swore they would never set foot in Berlin, in Germany. They were like, mm-hmm. we'll never go there. Why would we ever go there? And they got there and. Immediately, we were like, we're so happy we came. We let all of the anger go. You really realize how different Germany is and how awesome Germany Like, Germans are amazing. And they're so, they just, they've just been burdened. All this whole generation, like the entire country is people that were like, we had nothing to do with this. This yeah. is all yeah, our, yeah, sure. our great grandparents. We're so sorry. And thank you for coming and not blaming us for what our great grandparents did. And watching that scene where I shot Hitler, it's like this weird shared fantasy hmm. that everyone has had. Everyone in the world in every country is like, what if you could go back to time and shoot Hitler? It's a really so even though the movie was false, the fantasy was real. And watching it with my parents, they were like seeing me in the scene. It was it was an incredible moment. It was crazy. Especially since, you know, um you know, as an actor, you're kind of getting some critical acclaim. But a few years earlier, when, when Hostel came out, you got a lot of flack for kind of in, uh, inventing the torture yeah. porn. Um, actually, it's funny. I was reading today. Someone's called it a Gorno. When I was a kid, I, I used to call video stores looking for Gornos because we had heard that there was this mythical half porno movie. Half, half porn, half, half porn. The best gore. of both worlds. Yeah, and the actually, ultimate videotape. That's if right. You could find if that could find magic tape. And yeah. once I found, you know, uh, online, I found one called Hardcore. Hardcore's the best. It's I'm, the total I'm, gore. Nirvana. I'm, I, Nirvana. I, I, Nirvana. Nirvana. Ultimate Nirvana. It's really weird. I've watched Hardcore from 1974. It's, of course, the woman's a nymphomaniac. Yes. To go to the clinic, where, but little do they know they're sacrificing people at night. I have watched Hardcore. I've shown people Hardcore and Eyes Wide Shut back to back, and literally there are entire <laughs> sequences that wow. are shot for shot. I was like, I Kubrick think... Kubrick was a Hardcore fan. I think he, I think he was. I really do. <laughs> it's time for Ultimate Nirvana. 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 But if you look at the production design, their shots, like I could, I can show you shot for shot, back to back, hardcore. And I just, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was the thing. I mean, Hostel was an amazing time. I mean, it was, it was a great, great moment because it was me. You know, first Cabin Fever comes out in 2003, and there's a whole wave of guys like Neil Marshall does Dog Soldiers, and then The Descent, and Rob Zombie does yeah. Thousand Corpses, and James Wan and Lee Wan L come along and do Saw, and then it's this back and forth contest between <laughs> who can like outgross who. Can, <laughs> and the best part was I'm friends with those guys, and I love those guys. It was so funny. Like I would call. I remember being in the airport on the way to, to shoot Hostel Two because I don't want to give them too much lead time. They're like, and they're about to shoot Saw Three, and I was like, okay, so what do you got? And they were like, okay. We've got, and Lee's like, we've got this thing called Angel Wings that rips chest cavity open. I'm like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm like, 
I was thinking about like, yeah, we're gonna have like a girl with a nose ring and rip her nose out. He's like, oh, that's the first gag of Saw. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it's a guy with all these piercings. They all get ripped out. I'm like, damn it, I can't use that. And I'm like, okay, what are the body parts? Okay, okay, chest cavity. Okay, I'm gonna cut off someone's dick and feed it to a dog. We're gonna like, and we literally, I was like, I'm gonna do a Liz, like an Elizabeth Bathory homage where oh, woman's like nice. upside down, like virgin bled upside down in a bathtub for a naked masturbating woman. Again, like, yeah, no, no, we're not doing anything like that. That's cool. That's cool. Like we call each other to sort of tease each other, yeah, check in, and also to kind of see who can. And slip them and like Alex Aja who did Hills of Eyes. We all sort of this weird contest to see who can get the most gore. And we also used to I'd be like, well, Alex was like, well, look what Eli did in Hostel. I'd be like, well, look what Alex did. <laughs> yeah, right. so good. like everyone. It's by the way, the ratings board. You can thank the ratings board. Everybody loves to beat up on the MPAA. They are totally the ones that are like, yeah, you know what? People understand it's just a movie. It's not real hmm. violence. That you know, it's, it's this is what's on television. We're gonna warn people with more graphic. Like this is R for this, 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 and this. But they they like let us. They really were cool. We pushed the envelope, and they were like, "Yeah, you know what? The public, this is what people want." And been great. But you know what else is good about your movies too? Is that, yes, there's a lot of just ridiculously disgusting things, but there's always such great dialogue and good storyline in it as well. Thanks, you know, Chris. you could really see that. Like, I enjoyed the beginning of both the hostile movies just because of like the dudes hanging out or the, yeah. the girls hanging out. Because it, it, it's almost like you're going in this one direction and then just completely changes the other way. You know, and obviously you do that on purpose, but um, no, it's true. That's 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 the fun is starting at like Last American Virgin or Porky's. Like mm-hmm. I, it's you know the the three guys having fun. Everything's bright. Everything's color. They're all photographed together. It's daylight. Yeah, it's, it's in very specifically in the lenses, in the colors, and as people start to disappear, we started to pull colors away from Hostel. So oh. it starts off with, and it's it's really the orange jacket that becomes a symbol of that. And once Oli disappears and his jacket goes, it sort of turns into Schindler's List and Eraserhead. Oh. But the opening of it, and I don't want people to notice that, but that but in the production design, there's a very deliberate change in mm-hmm. the color palette as things get more grim and more bleak. And that's always been fun for me. You know, I like making movies you know i grew up with alien and invasion of the body snatchers right. and the thing and those horror movies were in the and it's spielberg making jaws it's kubrick making the shining it's really scott making alien the best directors were making horror movies mm-hmm. literally the best director william freaking making the exorcist yeah. winning oscars like he wins oscar for french connection and then he goes down to horror movies so it was like a really you know people made great movies because they cared about the characters they cared about and look, I love a bad cheesy horror movie as much as anyone, but I wanted to write something that you could that would hold up to multiple viewings because mm-hmm. the haunted house is never as scary the second time through. So you really got to give people something that's there in that like layer of commentary yeah. that's underneath. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Dawn Dead, all these movies have that. And that's that's what was fun with with Hostel was writing the parts for these guys where it's I, I watched audiences fight the movie. They're like this doesn't look like a horror movie why isn't this a horror movie i thought this was going to be a horror movie and after 15 minutes they just give over into the movie mm-hmm. and by the point when halfway through the movie when Derek richardson's killed it's Who's like ma- the most just, likable character most likable you'd character. never expect him to go first exactly he's the nice guy he's the vo- he's the eyes and ears of the audience he's the voice of the audience we're experiencing the movie from his perspective once he's eliminated suddenly you just feel uncomfortable because you're in a strange mm-hmm. country in a language you don't speak with people you don't really like and jay hernandez the Paxton character has to win. It's not until he goes back in to save the girl that you right, really right. start to root for him, which is the last 15 minutes of the movie. So you're kind of stuck with this guy you don't really like. Mm-hmm. And that for me is interesting. I like writing a movie that challenges the audience, that isn't going to be formulaic, that's going to break the mold, that's going to be almost two different halves. There's yeah. the first 45 minutes and the last 45 minutes. It's not, it's, it is a three-act movie, but it really isn't. It's sort mm-hmm. of structured and split into two parts. And 
even in Hostel too, like I, that's what's fun for me. And with Aftershock and Aftershock was like of, that big time. Thank you. Yeah, it's if on. If you guys Netflix. haven't seen Aftershock, it's on Netflix. It's really good. Did you write that? Yeah, I co-wrote it with my friend Nicolas Lopez. He's a terrific. Really director. well done. It's the same thing because you are the, the likable guy, and you suffer a horrible, yeah, horrible, horrible death. death. Oh, one of the worst. Just like, and he Terrible. betrays the audience. Like, yeah, like it's the, I'm the guy you're rooting for. And at a certain point in the movie, he kind of gives up. The goes like he's. He does something that the audience and I remember I actually had to talk with the ratings board and they said your death is too upsetting and I said but it's not even that violent I mean it's violent no, it's not that bad and they and I and I said I think what you're upset at is that you like my character and that you don't want him oh, to betray yeah. the audience and they're like yeah maybe that might be it that's cool so it was pretty hardcore though a, I still think about movie. it and that, actually the, end, the ending of that movie is amazing the oh, last thanks, scene man. in that was. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, Nicolas and Guillermo, who I wrote after Shock, Guillermo Amoedo, we wrote The Green Inferno together. And we wrote my new movie, Knock Knock, that I'm going to go there to shoot in April. But Nicolas made this movie called, he made a trilogy. The first one's called uh, My Life. The second one's called My Wedding. The third one's called My Family. And they were huge. These romantic comedies, huge hits. They're all on Netflix. <laughs> really, really, really funny. But he's like, you know, he's 10 years younger than me. And he really has set up a whole. Hmm. Production situation in Chile, where we've had a great time shooting movies there, and it's way cheaper. The, the casts are awesome. There's amazing crew and amazing talent down there, and I've just been down there on this weird adventure. You have been, fun. you know, it's like in two years down in South America, and once again, it's doing things your own way because you you're now starting to get back into directing, but yeah. still not with the like. I remember maybe even before Hostels, like Eli Roth's going to do a remake of The Bad Seed. He's going to yeah. do this Stephen King Cell, and he's going to do this, this, and this. And then you just kind of said, "Nah, I'm going to do my own thing." And then yeah. you acted for a while, and now you're getting back into making movies, but without studio real involvement. Now is yeah. Knock Knock going to be independent. independent? Same thing. Same thing. And I'm also writing a movie with David O. Russell that we're, we'll get either from a, either money from a studio or independent. Like what, what I like about shooting independently is you get the control, and right? You get and what I think makes horror work is that you have to be able to push buttons and take chances, especially you because that's what you're known for. Yeah, and, and obviously you don't want to repeat yourself and don't want to be like, okay, this one's got to be more violent than that. But you want to do a movie. The great horror movies disturbs people. It upsets people, and people don't feel good after. Yeah, and those are the movies that twenty years later we still talk about. Like, gee, there's like I feel uncomfortable recommending Last House on the Left to people or mm-hmm. Cannibal Holocaust. I'm, I have to like warn them, like, don't think I'm a sick person for liking this movie, but you got to watch this movie. Yeah, and I think that horror ha- and th- or thrillers have to have that element of danger to them. And the nature of studio movies is to make a movie that's acceptable for mass consumption. So they're going to cut out the sharp edges. Mm-hmm. Anything that could potentially alienate audiences. And that's fine. By the way, you get great movies. That way. The Lego movie is one of the best movies I've seen <laughs> since Toy Story 3. Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. It's, the be- it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I literally I think it's a masterpiece. And look, there's also movies like Wolf of Wall Street that come out. and That's insane. Yeah. American Hustle. Like, there's great movies that get done that get done through the studio system. But... For horror stuff and for thriller, I much I, they don't understand when I say I'm going to go in the jungle and crash a bunch of kids and have them kidnapped by like savages and have the most awful, horrible things happen to these kids that really think they're saving the planet. <laughs> it's like it, it doesn't register. And then when you show it with an audience, people come out of it, and the distributors were like, "We've never seen anything like that." Like mm-hmm. we actually, in in fact, some people didn't buy it. Because their hesitation is, well, there hasn't been another one like it. And I say, yeah, isn't that a good thing? And they go, but okay, but how do we sell this? It's Amazon. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. is it at night? It doesn't look like a ghost movie. It doesn't look like a haunted house movie. And there's been, look, The Conjuring is freaking amazing. Like James yeah. Wan, like full out freaking masterpiece. But it's not like that. It's during the day and it's green and there's people who like darts and chopped mm-hmm. up and all this kind of stuff. And the audience is loving it. But it's, it's you know, people in Hollywood generally want to bet on what has been 
successful before. Yeah. So, but, but I think one thing that you have in your in your uh, in your favor is the Eli Roth brand name. I mean, I've seen things. This is like even even was it Hostel presented by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. When you see that name, you know Eli Roth presents Last Exorcism. Yeah. I went specifically because Thanks, your man. name was on it, and also Hemlock Grove, which Hemlock I have on Grove, right on Netflix. Yeah, another no, really another very cool. Been, uh, and by the way, TV television now is really at a place where you see American Horror Story is awesome. Yes, Walking Dead is amazing. Like. The stuff that we could only dream about 10 years ago, oh, God, I have a great idea for television, but they'll never let us get away with. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. know, what makes horror, what makes television work is people love the characters. They want to come back week after week to those characters. What makes horror work is the threat that any of your characters could die at any moment. Yeah. So there's this inherent conflict, and then you see these series come out, and it's like, yeah, these guys figured it out. Yeah. They're, They're great series. They're scary. Anyone can die. It's shocking. And that's why, you know, Netflix has been, it's actually in the building that we're in, their offices, <laughs> they've been fantastic. And they brought, you know, all the weirdest stuff. I was like, well, okay, if I'm going to do a series that has werewolves and vampires, obviously the Twilight comparisons are going to happen. In two, so how are we going to, I want, if you had, if you were 17 and you were a vampire and the hot cheerleader got her period, you'd follow her into the bathroom, hypnotize her and go down on her. Like, why wouldn't you? And they were like, yeah, that's great, that's great, that's great. So... <laughs> That's what they let me do. So the weirder, sicker, crazier stuff, they're freaking And you can get it. away with that. They're all for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. They love it. Netflix has been letting it. So season two of Hemlock Grove, we could really, we had the advantage of looking, and they put all the episodes on at once. You have 13 mm-hmm. episodes That's right. right there. So season two, we, we shortened it to 10 episodes so that we could get, it's just tighter. It's just story, story, mm-hmm. story, 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 story. Just keep twisting the story. And as far as we want to go with the violence, with the weirdness, the crazier stuff we come up with, they're like, great, we love it. The weirder, the better. Mm-hmm. So Netflix, it's it's been awesome. I've had a great experience in television. Will you do more with Netflix for Hemlock Grove? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Season two is going to come out. They haven't announced the date. You don't know yet? They're, my guess it would probably be the summer. They're going to announce the date mm-hmm. soon. But it, it was a huge, huge hit for yeah, them. Yeah, it was massive. And they, and they love Good it. Stuff, they believe yeah. it. And what's cool about Netflix is they're subscription-based. It's not about getting the ratings every yeah. week or getting the amount of clicks. It's like their stock price goes up yeah. or people subscribe <laughs> to it. So that's how they that's how they quantify whether a show is a hit or not. So is that how you see your career going in the next few years, just doing kind of independent films your way and getting getting outside funding and then selling them? Yeah. I've, I'm in a position now where I have in, – exactly. I have investors. So a film like Knock Knock, mm-hmm. I – Write the script. I'm producing it with my friend Colleen Camp. We like write. Will you direct it, it too. I'm gonna direct it. Yeah, we figure out the script. We're casting it now. We're, we're like seeing actors, and we have the independent financing. But already the studios are circling it because mm-hmm. they go, "No, I'm directing it." Okay, Eli's got a thrill. And this one's different. It's not a gore movie. It's a thrill. It's really more like a Roman Polanski movie, which is good. You need to and it's switch up for sure. And then I, and then this movie, The Hive, which is a science fiction movie I've written with David Russell. We already have different independent financiers that even before we go to a studio. Because it's a big movie. That would be like a $40, $50 million gotcha. movie. And and that would take six months. That would be my leap into making a big film. But we're going to go in with the money. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go to the studio and go, this is the project. This is the script. Here's artwork of mm-hmm. what it's going to look like. Because it's a science fiction film. So I want to do like a James Cameron Ridley Scott. Like You've been talking about movie. that for a while. Like you, I remember something I to do Cameron. with... Um, the greatest. Was uh, Cloverfield? You watched that? And you're like, I got my idea for this yeah. Cloverfield. Thing. Well, this one I want to do first, and then okay, the, the, still the, got that this one. one. I still got that one. <laughs> Endangered Species, and and so it's um. What's great now is that because I've been forced to do things outside, the way the business has changed is everyone is looking for ways to do movies cheaper. I mean, two years ago, people were going, what the hell are you doing in Chile? Why would you go down to make a movie? And I've had so many producers and studios going, what's this Chilewood thing you guys, you and Nicholas have got Chili going on? Like, <laughs> you guys are doing movies for one-tenth the price, and they look amazing. Nobody, like, how can we 
do that or get in this because the business is really, really contracting and people just don't have the money they did Mm -hmm. even 10 or 15 years ago. So people are either making movies for a million or two million dollars or a hundred million dollars. It's really, it's, it's a very interesting time and you just got to be like nimble and find ways to adapt. And the best thing that I ever did was be forced to write everything because no one handed me anything. Everything, all my movies like cabin fear was like, no one wants to make it. All right. Crap. All right. We got to put together an LLC and, I don't know how to do that. Okay, I'll find a lawyer, and how do I do an LLC? And okay, I get investors, and what do I do? And mm-hmm. learn it. Mm-hmm. And because I was forced to do that from the start, I become completely independent. And everything I do is just generating ideas. I've Now I've gotten, because I've been forced to write seven or eight screenplays, I know how to write faster. Yeah. I just made myself do it. It's like, yeah. you know, no one, I mean, you learned wrestling, and you studied it, but the way you learn it is just yeah, by doing just it. Have it yeah. and what about your band like mm-hmm. you have Fozzie you're going to write music and no one taught you how to write yeah. music you have a melody or even, even the business model of it we, of course very, you have to be self self contained and once you learn how to do that you can make you can make it work and a lot of bands don't know how to do that a lot of directors or, or, or you know writers don't know how to do that but that's what's great about you is that you're also a businessman is that yes. you, you really very much and that's one of the things that we like even though it's different businesses what you did with wrestling and dancing with the stars and the book and mm-hmm. the music like Everything goes into the, in your pocket. Under Everything goes under your brand. Right. Exactly. And you and I have been very, very similar that way. So, but I think that our generation that we grew up with, we like nobody told us we couldn't do that. Nobody said, yeah. oh, you know, we were it's like, okay, you're this, this is your job and that's all you do. No one said, no, you can't do that. We're that's like, right. oh, we're from this generation that now it's like the first generation that believes we can kind of do anything. Yeah. And you really see it now with kids that are 30 and 20. Um, you know, people are just like, I'm going to have 10 careers. Watch this. And it's, yeah. it's great. If you can make it work. Exactly. What's the, your favorite movie that you've done? I mean, it's hard to kind of pick a favorite, but if you had to, which one gives you the best kind of memories about it? You know, Hostel, for Hostel. sure. Only yeah. because Cabin Fever I love, but making the movie was a nightmare because we never had the money. Yeah. It, was, you know, it was like, a, a, it was a battle every day. We got shut down by the unions. It was, it was traumatic. Everybody, all the producers, everybody developed like health problems from the stress <laughs> of that movie. Hostel was freaking fun. I just it just worked. You know, Hostel Two was not the same. Mm-hmm. It was a hard movie. It was a difficult shoot, and I don't know why. It was the same crew. The energy was different, different mix. But Hostel One, it was the first time. It's the first time. It was like nobody knew what it was. It was like a special mix of people. We were all just in Prague making this crazy movie. We thought, is this going to be direct to video? We don't know. We're like, <laughs> let's just go make this insane film. Then Quentin comes on after we shoot the movie, and suddenly it's a Quentin movie coming mm-hmm. off a of Kill Bill, mm-hmm. and it just then it opened number one. It just had that thing where there's. The tide was with us. The yeah. winds were in our favor, and that's all you can do. I mean, Man with the Iron Fist in China was a crazy shoot, and every you know, Aftershock I had a great time. Aftershock oh, yeah. was the most fun I've had since Hostel. We, I love it, and it, obviously the movie had a different fate. But you know, people are watching it now and discovering it on Netflix, which is cool. And it's been a, uh, it's hard, it's it's hard. But if I look back, and you know, Hostel was the one for sure. And what's your favorite horror movie? Dude, I don't know. It's impossible it's to impossible. pick. It's impossible. It's like The Shining, The Grudge, The Thing, The Jew on the Japanese Grudge, Who Can Kill a Child, of course. <laughs> yeah. like blood, blood Sucking Freaks is right up there for me. Can I tell you something? They just contacted me about a Blood Sucking Freaks Blu-ray release and nice. I want to be part of it. I said, absolutely. Can we use my audio commentary from the DVD release <laughs> I did before I ever made a movie? Well, you know, the, the I had that sidekick. His name was Ralphus. Ralphus. And that was, I, mean, people, I know. People still call him Rufus, but I'm like, no, it's yeah, Ralphus. It's Ralphus. From, from the midget Freaks. John Oates. In Bloodsucking Freak. Exactly. Why did he look so much like John Oates? I don't know. 
He was amazing. Mustache, the Ralph hair, was, and we tried. We tried to find him. I talked to the director. Apparently, Ralph has died. And so, oh. Sardu as well. It was terrible. That is terrible. The what only people. F- the only people that I found was Ernie Peicher, the dentist, and Dan Fossey, who plays the cop, who got really mad that I was going to identify him because he was a VP at Paramount at the time. He was like, <laughs> "Don't you tell people I'm." Da-. It's like, "Don't tell people I'm in blood sucking freaks." And so I was like, I, "I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I I didn't mean to like out you as the." He's like, "It just says I'm in it, but they don't they don't know that I'm Detective Tucci." And I go, "Well, you're really good in the movie." He goes. Yeah, you know, I was doing my Columbo. And I, like, he came to a cabin fever screen. And I was like, oh my God, it's Detective Tucci from Bloodsucking Freaks. Um, and they don't know that, like, a movie that they shot in 10 days that they completely forgot about, we literally obsess over every line of dialogue. Absolutely. And the trench coat he wears and the green variety. My, my favorite thing where I knew that we were kindred spirits was I went to your house way early on and you were playing some music in your house. And I said, uh, Hey, is this the soundtrack for Zombie? Of course. And you're like, Yes, it is, Lucio Fulci's Zombie. And, and I, I was like, What's cooler? The fact that I knew that this was Fulci's zombie uh, soundtrack, or the fact that you're playing it in your house. In my house. For That's no apparent reason. For no apparent reason. <laughs> the best part is, Fabio Ferrizzi, that composer, came to a screening of Green Inferno. It's like, it's be- what's so cool now is, like, I'm sure this happened to you, where you, I love yes. seeing you, where you meet Lars Metallica, yeah. you meet, like, Axel. And your heroes become your friends. It's really cool. DJ Ashba did, saw, did some music for Green Inferno. Oh, He's really killer. cool. Like, it was so awesome, dude. Like, Ashba's amazing. Like, yeah. seeing GNR with him. And, like, it was, it was so Yeah, we saw them at the Universal. I know. And now Ashba's become a friend. Like, and, and with these guys, like, who directed. I dedicated Green Inferno to Ruggiero Deodato, who directed mm-hmm. Cannibal Holocaust, and he and took him to the... We had a premiere at the oh, Rome Film Festival. Cool. Brought him and Sergio Martino and Umberto Lenzi, like the guy who directed Make Them Die Slowly. Like, all these people... Uh, you know, Claudio Fragazzo directed Troll 2 and Monster Dog and Fabio Frissi, like all these people of the movies, Lamberto Bava, who did Demons, the people that we like obsessed mm-hmm. over, they love it. They they It actually paid off. Like, all that obsessive watching of those new of those movies completely paid, paid off, off because yeah. they appreciate it they love it they love the fact that we were like some kids in America were just completely obsessed with these with movies that they were that they were like throwaways for them and you influenced them or they were in, they influenced Huge you influences. and now yeah yeah Eli it's great having you here man and and we could do this for hours and hours and hours but uh We'll have to when, when Green Inferno comes out. We'll have to get back. We will. Can I plug the crypt? Yeah, I, I sure. A, what do you dude, got? I got a new app on iPhone called the Crypt. Oh, it's what awesome. is awesome. It? It's if you if you look up, it's the Crypt it's for yeah. iPhone. We're building an Android version now. It's all horror based. It's people posting horror videos, horror photos. It's sort of like Tumblr and Instagram, but it's specific for horror. All right. So people, it's amazing. We launched on Valentine's Day, uh-huh. and already movies are starting to give us like exclusive clips and trailers. But I wanted to build something where, like, if if I was a kid and I'd made a really cool short, yes. And it, it, by the way, interface with YouTube and Instagram, you can kind of put it out there for all your friends. But this is a specific horror community, and so people like horror fans all over the world. All day are posting stuff and like I just do the sick drawing. Ah, I just took crazy photography, artwork, video horror. It's completely horror. It's like mobile platform for horror. It's like horror. In the your crypt. Head. The crypt. So yeah, you can Go download it. Store. Download it for free. It's fun. Always ahead of the curve, Eli. That's amazing, man. It's great to talk to you, dude. You too, man. And I'm glad that you get to take your uh, tuxedo off now. You get to go home and have a shower or something. Yeah, I need one. <laughs> My apologies. We'll be back after this with more talk is Jericho. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.
All right, let's go to the phones and see who was paying attention and caught the phone number on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. And what do you want to talk about today? We're just going into this blind. We're just going to go into it straight away. We got Eric from Minnesota on the line. What do you want to discuss, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, it's nice to talk to you. I would like to talk to you about uh, your fully loaded 2000 match with Triple H. Yeah, um, that was it was a pay-per-view called Fully Loaded, I believe. Oh, you yeah. just said that. Sorry, I was I was I was, I was remembering that the, the, the cover of the of the of the pay per view, the poster was like these dice, and I was just trying to remember what it was called. But you already mentioned that, so yeah, it was it was like kind of three established main eventers working with three uh, newer guys, and it was me and Triple H, Rock and Benoit, and Undertaker and Angle, I believe, were the three yep. the three matches. And yeah, it was it was uh, one of my favorite matches of my career. Uh, from what I remember, we tore the house down. It was. Um, a last man standing match, and uh, Triple H won kind of by the skin of his of his uh, chinny chin chin. But it was a it was a real kind of coming out for me. It was the first kind of main event uh, position that I was put in and delivered. I remember there was a lot of blood involved. Stephanie McMahon was involved. Hardest slap in the business. Her slap will uh, wake a dead man. So uh, great crowd in Dallas. One of my favorite matches for sure. What do you think? Okay. I, I loved it. I think the angle taker match after yours and Triple H's match had a tough time to follow you guys because because yeah, like the crowd was really into your guys' match and kind of had to come down a little bit before the title match with Benoit and Rock. Yeah, well, I mean that's what I mean. We were we were the first of the three, and it was hard to follow us. And I liked it that way. I was happy that we were on first of the kind of the three main events because, um, like I said, it was a real cool uh, match for me. A real kind of coming out, and I really, uh, to this day, still include it as one of my favorite matches. To the point that I even put it on my DVD a couple of years ago, which is called "Breaking Down the Walls" or just "Break Down the Walls." Uh, it's a fine DVD available on Amazon. Go there through Talk Is Jericho and get a nice uh, uh, do do a solid for me. Now we got Adam from Massachusetts. Hey Chris, what's going on, buddy? Hey man, what's on your mind? Uh, a couple things for you. The first thing I wanted to ask you was. Um about, I, I know you, you kind of go through your career, and especially the, the, the WCW days where, where they really wanted to put you in the NWO and kind of steer you in ways that you really didn't want to go. Have you have you ever really considered or thought about maybe doing some booking or anything like that just because your take on, on the perspective of some of these guys is a lot different than the norm? Yeah, I never really thought about doing booking. It's a thankless job. It's a hard job. And when you're working in the WWE, Vince is the booker. He's the, he's the, he's got the final say. And now they don't really even have bookers. It's all the creative team. So it's it's a big team. It's a lot of meetings, a lot of spending time on the phone, a lot of changes. I mean, Vince changes his mind uh, very quickly uh, all the time. So you could write out a whole plan of six, seven, eight months and end up you know having it all changed at the last minute. So I've always been the type of guy that would rather be in front of the camera than behind the camera. My ego's too big to have it any other way. And plus, I wouldn't be able to handle it. I don't like it when things change. I like long, kind of drawn-out, planned things. And for most of my my best uh, programs that I've done, um, I booked them or had an input in the booking anyways. Of course, everything always goes through Vince, and the final decision always rests with him. And that's something when... 
people give uh, guys in the creative team flack or you know the creative is bad or whatever. It all rests at the feet of Vince McMahon. He's the be all end all. He makes all the decisions to the point of changing things. You know, an hour before the show, if he uh, if he feels uh, that he that he wants to do that. So let's go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Very cold at this time of year. Andrew, what's going on, man? Yeah, this is Andrew from Iowa. Um, and by the way, if anything gets edited out, I won't take it person personal because this is pretty surreal to talk to you. Well, no problem. It's not going to get edited out, man. You're here. We wouldn't take All you. Right. All right. First off, can you give my can you give a shout out to my sister Haley? She thinks you're beautiful. Well, you just did. <laughs> Thanks, Haley. <laughs> All right. Um, my question is about WrestleMania 30, the Andre the Giant Battle Royal. Do you think it's taking opportunities away from anybody compared to like if they're in like a three-way or a one-on-one match? Well, absolutely not, because there's already, there's already going to be a three-way in the main event, so there's not going to be any more three-ways on the show. And, I mean, if you took the, the, the Battle Royal out of the equation, that might leave room for one or two more matches. So that's maybe, let's say it's a tag team match and a single match just for, you know, f- just for food for thought. So that's six guys that'll be on the show. They'll get probably a five minute match because all that matters on WrestleMania is the top four matches. Everything else is just filler. It's treated as filler. You know, sometimes the walk to the ring takes just as long as the match does. I'd rather, you know, I'm sure the guys in the Battle Royal aren't happy or some of them are probably ecstatic because that means they're going to be on the show. So it kind of it kind of depends on what side of the coin you are. Yes, there might have been a better position for three or four of the guys um, in the Battle Royal, but that's also 26 other guys that wouldn't have been on the show had they not, uh, you know, put that Battle Royal on. So it's great for, you know, 80% of the guys and not so good for, for the other 20%. And for the other 20%, they didn't have a good program or a good angle going on anyways, so what difference does it make? Yeah, I know what you mean. What would you, if you were personally still in the company, would you rather be like in a, like in a different match or the Andre the Giant Battle Royal? If I was still in the company, I wouldn't have to worry about it because I'd have a really hot angle going into WrestleMania. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate your call. Let's do one more. We got Steven from Taylorville, Illinois. Who, how's, how's it going, man? What's going on? How's it going? I'm rocking, dude. What's what's on your mind? Well, I just want to let you know you are my favorite wrestler of all time, first of all. Thank you. Um, I was in St. Louis for the Elimination Chamber in 2010, where you beat The Undertaker for the world title. Yes. Well, I've never got any anything from this, but Undertaker coming out, as you might remember, he basically Absolutely. got caught on fire, yep. and he didn't look very pleased. And I just kind of want you to talk about what happened or he, he was yeah absolutely uh, my new book the best in the world at what I have no idea comes out on October 13th and I write very very uh, intricately the story of what happened with Taker but basically the pyro guy screwed up and let the pyro off not just once not just twice but three times in his path to where he literally got burned that was no joke uh, he was out for about two months after that match with uh, third degree burns second degree burns and he had to stand in that pod, if you remember. He was the last one to get released out of the pod of the Elimination Chamber for about 20 minutes, just burning. You know how bad it is when you burn your finger on a match? He was burned all over his body to the point where he he wears the singlet. When you pulled the singlet away, it was, let's say, white, and underneath was red. You could see you could see the line where he was burned. Uh, his, his coat, the Undertaker long leather coat, was shriveled up and burned like a piece of wax paper that you would hold over a fire. The only things that really saved him was that coat, the fact that his hair was always wet, 
and the fact that he wears that big, big, uh, big brimmed hat. Those three things are what saved him from being um, horribly, horribly burned. We worked the match. Uh, I, I beat him for the title. I went to the back. He was already in the trainer's room having a one-on-one conversation with Vince McMahon. I remember to this day he said, uh, I don't want any excuses. I don't want any apologies. I don't ever want to see the pyro guy again because if I do, I'm going to kill him. And Vince was like, I got wow. it. And that guy was escorted out of the building, and we never saw him again. So, oh my. there you go. The Undertaker, definitely the toughest man I've ever seen to go through that because, dude, I was in the pod and had a direct bird's eye view of him walking onto the stage and the pyro engulfing him in flame. Just like you heard that story about Metallica when James Hetfield got engulfed in flame. I saw it, not just twice, but three times. Wow, that is, that's crazy. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for following me on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho and for listening to this podcast and for calling in and for linking to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page at podcast1.com whenever you do your online shopping. Every time you buy something that way, Amazon kicks back a few dollars to this show so I can keep bringing you the pot of thunder twice a week for free. It covers our many expenses here. A vacuum. I like to have a clean floor when I do it. I don't wear shoes. I want a vacuum to clean up the debris and the little chunks of stuff. Those cost money. My new book, The Best in the World at What I Have No Idea, coming out on October 13th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. Do it through the Talk is Jericho page. Help a brother out. And thanks for hitting that download button. In fact, if you like what you're hearing here on Talk is Jericho, tell a friend to check out the show. There's literally hundreds of podcasts to choose from. Thank you for joining me. Tell your friends. Tell them to tell a couple friends. Tell everybody about us. You can even hit that subscribe button at iTunes so you never miss an episode. I don't want you to miss a damn thing. And I'll see you on Wednesday for another fun-filled episode of Talk is Jericho. Stay hungry. Stay hard. God bless you all. We love you. See you next week. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcast1.com. <laughs>